Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Hi there. I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, aka Carol the Coach, and we're here with some more sex help with Carol the Coach. You know I've made it my mission to be with you and educate you if you're an addict and want to learn about how to make recovery possible, or if you're a partner and you want to understand the addict better and be able to take care of yourself. That is my mission, to help both of you in any way that I can. And if you're a single person and you don't have a partner, I'm here to help you because What I know to be true is sometimes being single means that it's harder for you than if you've got somebody. And the reason is that total incentive to be recovered has to do with you. There is no doubt that more oftentimes than not, if a couple experiences the discovery of sex addiction, that the addict will see how much pain he's caused or she caused and will try harder to change his or her life. And so if you're a single person and you don't know what's going on, you know you need some help, but there's nobody helping to hold you accountable, I know it's harder. There is no doubt in my mind. I talk to addicts all day long and they say, whoa, if I were single this would be a whole lot tougher. So, okay, this show is to help you figure out what is the formula that's going to increase your chances of sobriety. And I'll tell you what, tonight I'm excited and looking forward to meeting with a recovering couple who really struggled with addiction porn addiction, lust, affairs, and a lot of hearts were broken, and yet the mending has occurred. And they're going to be talking about how did that, how did that transpire? What had to happen to make them work through this process and trust each other and get back on the right track? And John is... Um, really somebody who has been faithful to his recovery program. And Karen has not only underwent the turmoil that comes with loving an addict, but has also created a passion for helping other people work through it. So we're going to find out about their recovery and how faith got them through. 
got them through the turmoil, got them through the anguish, and got them through the trust they needed to build to be a stronger, healthier couple. Now, i got to tell you, more often times than not, this process is very, very difficult. Any addictions therapist who knows the different types of addiction will say, sex addiction, perhaps eating addiction, you know, when you're a compulsive overeater or you've got anorexia or bulimia, these two process addictions are the toughest to work through because you need food to live and you need sex. Well, now, in recovery, we oftentimes tell people sex is um, secondary to who you are as a person, and it is. But you don't want to ignore your sexual self, and as a result, that makes it a process addiction Now, I'm going to ask you, as I have worked with addicts for over over a decade, what I know to be true is that clearly the people that come in my office want to get healthy, but there's one population that's willing to do whatever it takes. There's another population that's going to do the majority of what it takes, And then there's another population that sure does hope I have a magic wand that can make things better. And when you work any program, whether it's faith-based, 12-step-based, residential treatment-based, we all know that it only works if you work it. That is so important in recovery. So you've got to work it hard. And then eventually it isn't as hard as it was initially. And that's really important to know that, hey, if you keep working it, it will work. So let me ask you, if I can, do you really want to make your life different? If you're an addict, Are you really willing to do what it takes? And do you just trust a professional like myself or perhaps a CSAT that's working with you, an APSAT who's working with you? Um, Do you trust that we do know what it's going to take? I mean, obviously you're the person that's going to make it work, but we know the formula that really benefits any kind of addiction, because not only does it replace a healthy situation with something that has been so dark, so sick, so secretive, but we also know that when you work these steps, they work. Now, not everybody likes 12-step programs. Not everybody relies on their faith to get them through. Not everybody benefits from a treatment center, a hospitalization, an intensive outpatient program. But clearly, if you're willing to do the hard work, you will find that the hard work eventually becomes easier. And here's the miracle. You'll want it in your life to stay healthy. So, if you're doing inspirational reading and recovering reading and you're journaling and you're going to meetings and you're talking to your sponsor, what you'll eventually find is that no longer is this a burden, something you have to do. It becomes something that you want to do. And isn't that the key of life? I mean... Isn't that what everybody wants is to make the hard work be something that becomes a lifeline? You know, I was working with a group the other day of sex addicts, and they were really checking in, and they were talking about their feelings. And, you know, we definitely talk about the recovery tools you need to get healthy, but we also talk about life skills. 
are you somebody who practices assertiveness? Do you tell people how you feel, what you need, and what you believe? If you hold back and you don't share your authentic self, it's going to be harder for you to stay sober. Because when you stay sober, you find your authentic self. Wow, that's important, isn't it? That you find your authentic self, that you're transparent, authentic, honest, genuine. And the only way you can be those things are if you express who you really, really are. Now, I talked with my group about the four types of communication skills that most people revert to when communicating with people they care about or people they work with or people they interact with. And they are passive. And passive skills really means that you just kind of allow life to happen and you don't really stand up for yourself and you don't share who you really are. Well, you just heard me say this is not a good way to be because your feelings, thoughts, and beliefs are important. It doesn't mean you get what you want, but they're important to voice so that you can stay true to yourself. Then the next type of communication after passive is something called passive-aggressive. And that's when you don't share what you really think, feel, or believe, but you get what you want behind everybody's back. You become passive-aggressive. You say, you know what, I'm going to get what I want, but I don't want anybody to know that I really wanted it, so I'm going to do it secretly so that nobody knows. And sometimes I'm going to hurt people. I'm going to hurt people because I'm not telling them what I need or what I want. And when you're passive-aggressive, you really don't feel safe enough to be honest. That is not a healthy way to be. Then on the opposite end of passive is just plain old aggressive. You know, if you are being criticized by your spouse and he or she is not noticing all the good work you're doing, and you eventually cut him or her off and you say, you know, stop it, I'm not going to take this crap, I'm tired of you, you can't treat me like this, and you begin to attack that person, you're responding and relating aggressively. And aggression does not work in healthy relationships because it is an attack. It puts the other person on the defense, and it makes them feel criticized. And that is not a healthy form of communication. So what we really encourage and recommend is assertiveness. And when you're assertive, you're clear and direct about what you feel, what you believe, and what you need. And as I said earlier, it doesn't mean you get your way, but at least people know who you are, they know where you stand, and they know what you want. And when you're in relationship with somebody, whether that's your husband or your wife, your kids, your parents, or your work, you owe it to them to speak your mind, to share your feelings in a courteous and civil way. And I teach people with assertiveness, one of the best formulas you can use is, Tom, when you get angry with me because I don't clean the house. I feel angry because the message it sends me is that I am not capable of managing this household. Or, Susie, when you yell at me because I go to too many meetings, I feel angry because the message it sends me is that I am not paying enough attention to our family. Or, Mary, when you check my phone, I feel 
sad because the message is that you don't trust me. Now, the truth of the matter is all three of the statements that I just made are true. And they don't mean that this is not something that a couple doesn't need to negotiate. I mean, one of the things you know from listening to the show is if you're a betrayed partner and your husband or wife has cheated on you, once you have discovered that, you do have every right to check their phone, probably for one to two years after the indiscretion, the betrayal. And the reason I say that is because you've got to build up some trust and they've got to know that they can check at any time and not be duped and they can begin to trust you. In a healthy relationship, in a relationship where there's been no infidelity, it really wouldn't be right to be checking each other's phones or their laptops or their whereabouts. But since this betrayal occurred, it's really, really important that you build trust with your spouse. And so assertiveness at least shares with the other person how you feel. But obviously, it doesn't mean you get what you want. It doesn't even mean that you're right. It just means you have an opinion that deserves to be shared. And that's assertiveness, and that's what I want you to strive for. Um, It will help your spouse, whether he's the addict or the partner, it will help everyone in the coupleship know how you feel, and that is always important. And, you know, obviously I interview couples to find out what has worked and and what hasn't in the relationship. So tonight I have John and Karen, and their recovery has been a work in progress, and it is so solid now that they help other couples with the relationship. They work diligently to make sure that everybody understands where they're at in the relationship and what they want for their future. So, guys, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. So nice to be here. Hey, it's nice to have you. You know, you two are my heroes because you show people that it is possible to have gone through this and to actually grow stronger. And tonight we're going to be talking about how do you do that. So each one of you, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourselves. And I guess I'll ask Karen to start. Sure. Um, well, um, what we wanted to come on here is we are just so grateful to have this chance to be on here with you, Carol, the coach. And I'm Karen, the coach. <laughs> and um, we, uh, your heart. we just, <laughs> we just wanted to share, you know, we want to share with couples and with anyone out there listening, partners, you know, or addicts or whoever's listening, that there is so much hope that, um, and healing that is possible when there are, um, two people that are going to work at it. And we just wanted to share how important faith is to us and in this journey, how important it was to us, our faith. Um, uh, John and I, we have been married 35 plus years and it'll be 36 years in August. And, um, you know, by the grace of God, we've made it this far. And we met when we were, um, I was 15 when he was 19 in on the beach when we were young and we fell madly in love and we didn't have faith then we were pretty wild crazy teenagers we fell madly in love and we got married when i was 18 and um you know we didn't we didn't know like we both had come from um backgrounds my parents had been married 65 years they showed me a really good example of a marriage um but there was no faith in there in that growing up and uh, when John came with a box of uh, Playboy magazines, I thought that was normal um, to a point. But I remember feeling, you know, not very good about it. But I didn't know, you know, what to say about it. And, um, and you, you know, know there's a lot. That, Go ahead. You mm-hmm. mirror what so many women wonder. You know, they have this gut feeling that 
maybe that's not right for them or the coupleship, but they don't know where the boundaries are, and so they either stay silent or they may even challenge it a bit, but they end up questioning their self and their intuition. And and so when that box of Playboy showed up, and obviously John had been looking at that, and we're going to talk about his childhood Mm -hmm. trauma in a minute, Um, Mm -hmm. You had that gut feeling like, oh, I don't want that to be in our marriage. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yep, yep. And there had been some other instances, and there was a lot of alcohol, and there was a lot of running off and leaving, and there was, um, uh, you know, strip bar a couple times. You know, there were some things. There were definitely some red flags, but I didn't. You know, no, but I, you're right. In my gut, I knew, but I was so young as well, so I didn't, you know, I just didn't know. But I definitely had the feeling in the gut that something, you know, didn't feel right about that. And I certainly didn't grow up seeing that from my parents or my father. So that it was definitely something. But I never felt never felt safe to bring that or, you know, prepared to bring that to John. And so, yep, I just went ahead with that and you know and even you know at some point we watched porn together you know until we heard a church sermon on it early on when we started going back to church and realized wow this is wrong this is awful and um, yeah, I yeah bet. there and were a I'm lot of have, little signs because obviously you two have been married a long time so John when you think back to having met Karen and I mean Let's face it, marriage is trial and error, and it's hard for somebody who ends up having an addiction to know what's right or wrong initially, especially if you don't have faith in your corner. And you actually suffered from some childhood issues that you think created kind of a backstory to your addiction, did you not? I'm just curious, is John Uh there? Did we lose him? John? He was on there. Um, Oh, hi, Carol. I'm so sorry. I I just want to tell you hello. I really love your show. Thank you for having us on. Uh, My hero is Karen. Um, Gosh, because uh, of of what I've put her through and what she's gone through. But, yes, I had had five different men who raised me, um, all uh, alcoholics. Um, and quite frankly, I didn't know what was really right and what was really wrong, uh, in a sense of my own personal, um, I guess you could call it, uh, it, it all seemed the same, um, as we were, uh, coming together. I did know one thing I did not want to be and have a marriage or be a man mm-hmm. husband like I had seen in my past, um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, the first time I saw Playboys, I was my third father, or the second father, actually. But, uh, he, he came home from the Marine Corps, and uh, he had a suitcase of Playboy magazines for a couple of years, and that was my first exposure to it. Yeah. And so, you know, so oftentimes when we find out about addiction, what ends up happening is you get intrigued by something you've never seen and and you feel like there's something not right about it, it's wrong, but at the same time it sets up that reward center in the brain and it creates an arousal and a fixation that says go back to that over and over and over again. So did you find that your sexual behavior became compulsive? Yes, yes and no. It it would go um, in, in masturbation as a as a as a young man and, and getting older. Um, it would be a place that I considered mine. Um, when I when I really think about it, I would think that it was uh, a, a place where it wasn't hurting anybody, um, and certainly I didn't have to deal with any relationship, but I couldn't have one at the young age of 13, 14, and 15, 16. Um, but it did definitely, as as I got older, 
uh, it, it was it did not seem like it was an addiction in any way, shape, or form. Um, but the lust certainly was. Um, mm-hmm. On all on on all and any occasion of lust, it it certainly would bring me back to the time of um, the first time that I saw uh, these magazines or whatever pornography what I would see or you know in pictures. Um, I just considered it it won't hurt anybody, and I certainly didn't know that what I know today. Uh, how it, you know, it concealed a a, a real hurt. Um, well, we know, that, you know, yeah. Karen and you and I all know that you make up excuses when you know something doesn't feel right, but you want to do it anyway. So obviously, you may not have known that it was going to lead to any kind of compulsion or addiction, but you did know on some level it probably wasn't right. And so at what point in your marriage, and maybe I'll ask Karen this, Karen, at what point Mm -hmm. in your marriage did you realize, hey, John's really got a problem? Well, okay, so to add to what John was saying, I was just thinking, too, that um, along with, you know, that escape, he also had some other escapes that – he learned when he was young, like to run away kind of thing. So that was another piece to uh, that went along with the sexual acting out. He would tend to want to go away for a few days and like kind of numb and shut down. And I would never be invited into places, um, to those places. They would be, you know, surfing in Mexico or whatever, hunting. But they were always, so that, that was another part that was, a lot of our relationship was this place that he sort of always needed to go and detach from me and everyone and go off. So there was that. And then there was, you know, also always kind of a struggle with looking at other women um, on and off, you know, but then, you know, we found our faith young as parents. We came to God with our new baby at 19 years old. I was 19 years old and we were in so much joy and things were really good then. As far as I knew, you know, they were good. And then it was, I guess the Internet came out in whatever that was, uh, 80s, I guess, in late 80s. And that apparently John started, um, you know, getting back at it and stronger at it, right? But it was around my 40th birthday. So um, that was uh, maybe like, yeah, 20 years into marriage, things started to take a drastic turn. Okay, well, I'm living my dream. We had, at this point, you know, we're going to fast forward, you know, all those years we had four kids, biological, two kids adopted, this beautiful, you know, picture of family, three boys, three girls. John's construction business was uh, doing really well, successful. I got to design my dream home. He built it. It was in magazines. You know, and then we had all the church groups at our home. 250 kids would come over and be baptized in our pool. And we worked and we had ministry and I led Bible studies. And John was leading groups down to, um, you know, Katrina. And, and I was just living my dream, right? And I thought everything was okay and we were great. And, I mean, I gave him a birthday party, and his 40th birthday party. And we danced, um, were serenaded by 200 of our friends to Shania Twain, you're still the one, you know. And, I mean, if someone would have whispered in my ear what was going to happen in the next few years, I wouldn't have believed it because things just started going really bad. And um, that lust, and, I mean, it was happening, you know, everywhere we went. And he gave me a big 40th birthday in our brand-new home. And, you know, he got very drunk and, you know, hung on all over a woman. And, you know, and it was just very unhealthy behavior that I'd never seen before, you know, that like that bad. It was, you know, pretty humiliating for me. And I was so hurt. And then I remember going back and trying to talk to him about it, you know, the next few weeks. And it was like my pain. I didn't know it at the time and he didn't either. But when I brought him my pain, he refused to hear it. And it got like he just turned against me. Now it was like this wedge in between us because I had these this pain from him, from these behaviors, and he started to drink a lot, 
and I would go to him, and then he would turn away from me. And I didn't, we didn't understand it at the time what was happening. But and we went to counselor a couple times, and then didn't go back. And this started a cycle of so much unhealthiness on well my end because I thought I was going, you know, going crazy because I would try to talk to him, and he would, I'd be met with you know, intimidation, gaslighting, aggressiveness, emotional, verbal abuse. And here I was, you know, Christian woman in the church, and I would try to, you know, win him over with my godly behavior, right? And nope, that didn't work. And then I mean, that actually made it worse because I was enabling, you know. Mm-hmm. You were obviously on this roller coaster from the point that you met him. I mean, you said yep. our life kind of crazy and wild, and then, you know, you really kind of found some happiness, and then here you're mm-hmm. celebrating a momentous occasion, and you realize, oh, my gosh, things are rocky again. I And and so let me yeah. just check in with John. John, what was going mm-hmm. on for you at about that point? Well, I I really always – if you if I look back and I think now of uh, the the men that raised me, um, no one I never dealt with any hurts uh, or any traumas uh, in my life. And what had happened and I it, it is this. Let me give you an example. My real father, for example, he died on Christmas Eve by himself, and I got a phone call and I said, "Your father's dead and he's left you a box." So I go pick up the box. And uh, in my garage, uh, this is, I mean, we were probably five years, six years into our marriage. And I opened the box, and there's little things, trinkets and things, and, and a, um, a, a sex video. And I never thought about it very much. I looked at it. It was old. And I didn't tell, I didn't tell my wife, and I got mm-hmm. rid of that. And then I look at the way that I handled problems as a child. I would run. And I would be I, – I spent so much time after the second man that was raising me while my mom was, was off working. I, I looked at – when he died, uh, I mean, I had no one to go to with this issue. I loved this man, it turned out. But so I stayed in the back of an apartment, and I rode a skateboard, and I, and I really kind of grew up, you'll be okay, nothing's wrong, nothing ever talked about. I was never encouraged. But a lot of these problems – came, though I was loved by my mother and I was never seriously beaten or abused in a, in, a, in, a, in a terrible way, what I looked at, what I learned that was coming at me was how my childhood affected me as I was growing older and getting to a place in my 40s where I still wanted to run um, and I'd go surfing, I'd do what Whatever it was, I didn't want to do it with my wife. Um, and it got to be like, your dreams are not my dreams. Um, and it was, mm-hmm. it was really hurtful. I couldn't talk to her with any empathy. So the sins and the problems in our marriage that, got, that just kept coming uh, and the things I did, I seek forgiveness without any healing. And I never wanted mm-hmm. to talk about it. So she'd come to me with any hurt and emotion, and I would look at it as, "Come on, are, really?" You know, uh, it was a job, I was right? in a like you said. Oh, worse than yeah, yeah, it was a yeah bad job. And so you already have a job. Yeah. I look back at all of the time I ran and the things that I just stayed away from uh, with with my different fathers, uh, the men that in my life that. Um, I realized that uh, I really had a very lying and uh, deceptive uh, personality, and which I hid. I was never, I never told anyone where I was from or who had raised me, really at all. Not even my wife. I kept a lot from her, not knowingly, but I did. Um, okay, and so let and me so, check in. Yeah. Karen, do you think you knew about John's trauma? Because obviously when he started really acting out and disassociating from you, that caused you to have trauma. Were you able to see his trauma? 
No, not for a long time. I didn't understand it. And he, you know, I had thought I knew enough about his childhood because he seemed somewhat open about it, you know, five fathers and alcohol. And there was abuse he heard, you know, on his mom and things like that. And so I thought I knew, but I I did not connect it. And I did not, I mean, it, yeah, because it was just so many years later. And I was so confused because we had, you know, I thought, we were both happy at that point and, you know, living this blessed life. We both were so blessed. He used to say it too. And so we would share our story with other people about our kids and adopted kids and you know, all of this. And then now it was like I would share the story and I'd see his eyes roll and I'd see this disgust. And I was so confused. And then if I tried to bring in my heart, like I said, I would get met with this, you know, aggression and don't, I don't want to hear it and I already have a job. And then it started to get, you know, longer and longer uh, time of disconnect and uh, disregard and dismissed and minimized and gaslighting. And it started to go into this big thing. And like I said, I first tried by, you know, being loving and all of that. And that just enabled, I mean, literally it made it worse. So then I resulted to freaking out and trying to chase him down and trying to talk about it and that pushed him further and further away. I had no idea about, you know, intimacy disorder, fear of being known. I had no idea about any of the porn that was happening at that time. I didn't other than what happened to my birthday and places we'd go to the mall and I'd, you know, catch him just, you know, staring at someone. And I, again, met with fear, you know, I was afraid to bring it to him at this point. I had lost my voice in all of it. It got so ugly that I wasn't even safe to bring him my hurts and my feelings. And then we had um, a ranch that we had built, and he would go out there, and I would call him, and he would have the phone turned off for a week. He'd be gone, phone off, and I'd be at home with all six kids. And you know, I felt clearly, so stuck. Your whole history um, prior to recovery was about uh, John disappearing and escaping. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, John, if you were trying to figure yourself out or if you were just numbing from the reality of what you were doing. Do you know what you were doing? You you know, part of it sounds uh, so simple but it, it it's not i mean i really wanted out of where we were at i wanted to hunt and fish and i wanted to be free what i thought was was freedom was uh not being uh what i would say intimidated by my wife's hurts and uh i had sexual i had a sexual sense um and it was it was a place where I just wanted to get away. And mm-hmm. then it got worse, didn't it, Karen? Um, oh, yes, it did. It, and I think it, a lot of it has to do with, Carol, like, the you know, the, the feeling of the pain and of my pain and not knowing what to do with it. And at the time, neither of us knew that. So here I am having all of this pain being built up, bring it to him, and he's never – faced his own pain so he couldn't handle my pain you know absolutely and i want to just double check for our listening audience the kinds of things john that you were dealing with you were dealing with porn and you were dealing with lust and you had had some periods of time when you visited strip clubs were there any other infidelities that that became compulsive not you know the strip clubs weren't uh in the picture but it was i did have a, a you know an out of marriage relationship and that was uh such a lie as well i i was just seeking anything other than the realness of what i had had which was a wonderful wife a wonderful home beautiful children who i loved i didn't feel it and I I was living a lie and 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 running, and I don't know if we shared this shit, but I left for I think two years, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that was a that was a time where I I seeked my freedom. I finally left. I was a coward, and anything that I could do in a smoke screen or to throw up a reason for my leaving, I burdened that with my wife and lies. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, Karen can tell you how she hurt by that, but. I, I really can say that I was a coward in going back and going back to the family I loved. And what I would tell myself is, they'll be all right. And I completely had left God's side then. What was the wake-up call for for you, John? Can I share real quick, Jeff? I would, um, yeah. just, oh, go ahead. Hey. Did you want to talk? Well, the wake-up call was... I could only go, you could only go so long. The first week, for example, I'm on a tractor and I'm cutting some hay. I'm cutting this ranch and there was a light fog and I'm looking out there going, is this really, is this really what I want? But I was too cowardly to go back. I did not want to deal with it. I just wanted to just run. And it kept me in a place where I tried to find happiness and alcohol and partying and doing things uh, and the hunting and the fishing. It just, it, it really wasn't cutting it. And the wake-up call was was this, and I, and I look at it kind of as a narcissistic-type call. And it was, I can never be happy with what I have done to my wife. And I would see her in my mind when we met because she had nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with me leaving when it comes, when it came down to it. So, I would just, it kind of, it burdened me, and it burdened me for days, and that's when I had decided to go back. Wow. And Karen, what were you going to say? What did you think the wake-up call oh, was? Well, well, real quick, before before he left, like we were saying, he'd go, you know, one um, one week, then it ended up being two weeks, and the phone. And talk about crazy making, and that's why I just feel like I have to share for the partners out there, listeners, because you know so many women um, that I work alongside today are in that place where they feel crazy, right? Because they know something in their gut is wrong. And I would ask John, "Are you having an affair?" And it would be an adamant no. I would get up in the middle of the night and search for his phone and look through stuff. You know, I mean, nonstop, I was trying, you know, I was trying. I knew in my gut something was wrong, but I couldn't find it. I had no passwords. I wasn't allowed. He'd spend nights at his office, you know, before he left. And I was trying, right, trying to do everything, um, looking, trying to be sexy, trying to take care of him, sex, you know, sexually, which blew me away because that was always a strong point in our marriage. So I couldn't understand that part of it. I, you know, just tried to be a better wife, a better mom, take care of the kids, uh, just tried everything till I realized that, you know what, <laughs> nothing I'm trying is working because it's not about me. And so that was a real wake-up call for me, and, it, and especially when it came um, after all those years at home, five years of that craziness, and, and two years, like, really crazy. And then he left me on Mother's Day weekend. And I knew when I heard my our youngest son say, Dad went surfing to Mexico, and it was Mother's Day weekend of a mom with six kids, that I, I knew that he was gone, gone. I just knew it in my heart that he wasn't coming back this time because we had had enough talks that, you know, it, if he was to do that, that things were going to look different. And sure enough, I sat there looking out the window of a dream home, and all of my dreams were shattered. And I really wanted to curl up and die. I was in anguish i was let we were well known in our community and you know his construction business and we had the church group at our house and everyone knew our home and blah 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 you know and it was i mean i just wanted to die and but right there this is where my faith really came in i just say okay god i'm done you can have him i'm done he is yours and i need to know what you want to do in my heart because i can't live like this and i've got these six kids staring at me and I've been telling them about their faith their whole life and what was I going to do with that. I felt like, okay, I'm going to show them that I, you know, going to look to God, not my husband, 
to where what I'm going to do, and I'm going to get some help, and I'm going to find a counselor, and I'm going to, you know, learn, you know, and seek what I need to do because now I had no more control over John. It was time for me to look at me and how I was going to survive this, and that's when I found an amazing counselor at the time, and she was wonderful with me and understood my heart and. You know, I, I, I didn't feel led to, you know, uh, file for divorce right away or whatever, even though it looked a mess. I just felt like I needed to get well before I made any decisions. And that's what I did. And I started to find my voice. I started to understand boundaries. I started to see the gaslighting. I started to, the cool thing is, the cool part about it is I actually started to feel compassion for John because I started to realize where this came from. That's, I think you asked me earlier, this is where God showed me that he is a wounded man, and this wasn't about me. This is about his past and his traumas, and that, you know, that it wasn't about me, and that I was learning to love myself, find my voice, and find my worth again, and that's why this is so important and what I do today with women, because I had lost it all, and I had taken on so much of the blame and the guilt and I was finally getting at a place where I understood this wasn't about me it was him and that I actually felt sorry for the guy I mean who can walk out on their 28 year marriage and all six kids and not care I mean to see that man you know not care about his children and throw it all away I started to see the truth in it and started to pray for his heart but at the same time, I was getting well for me and finding my worth and value in my voice. So there was this, there was this one night of contact that John and I had versus, you know, it was business, money, or whatever. And at this point, I had stopped the emotional, you know, crying out to him, calling, texting. I let go. He was God. I was done. So at this point, I would just say, you know, please drop the money off here. Thank you. I mean, it was like that. And uh, and so we had this little short text, and he admitted to me he was miserable and that he had sent a picture that he was on hunting, and he said, see that buck? I'm smiling, but it's a fake smile. But this time Karen had boundaries. So Karen was not going to um, have John come back in right away because I'd finally gotten well with that and started finding my voice. And so we, I said we could meet at counseling. And so we'd meet at the counseling office every week. He'd show up. He'd not show up. He'd show up. He'd not show up. But thankfully, our counselor was so good that she kind of called him out and said, if you're going to continue this, you need to show up every week or I'm not going to counsel you. So he had some pressure on that. And meanwhile, he started to go to church with me that happened to be down the street from the counselor's office at a church that, you know, we didn't know anybody. So he, you know, he felt kind of comfortable going there because, our church back at home, you know, was too shameful, right? And uh, and we were going, and um, he recommitted his life back to God, and that was a big deal. And then so that he finally go ahead. began to play a role in this recovery. First, it was your mm-hmm. boundaries, you standing on your own saying, this is what I'll accept and this is what I won't. And then going yep. to church really catapulted his ability to recover. I mean, I know that one of you at one point had said um, when you were writing to me that God cornered John. So, John, do you remember mm-hmm. that? How did God corner you? John? You there? Yeah, I was just saying that one morning um, I was looking at this wall at our at our ranch and I had been in so many lies to myself. My self-talk was just so, it's, it's so pertinent to know that the self-talk of a man um, in the lies that he will tell himself, I, I believed I was getting a divorce. I believed our marriage was nothing, uh, that we had nothing. And as time went by, I started coming back to, to my thoughts. And it was about how I felt so bad that I had hurt her that I could never be happy with what I had done to her, no matter what I got, no matter what I received, no matter what, monetarily, any other way. And I was looking at this wall, and I hadn't prayed for two years because uh, I was I was really uh, close to the to 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, and I had seen him work and I had felt his heart. Uh, and I looked at this wall and it was subliminally in my mind. It was as if uh, I was spoken to in a way that just said so many words. And it was, it was like, I, I know what you've done. Go back and tell them what you've done. And if they're not, you know, if they're not, I forget the other part now, but if they're not you say it, um, if, if, if uh, accepting accept to you, you or forgive you, mm-hmm. yeah, that I'm, and I'll never forget, I'm more than enough. And I'm not kidding, Carol, this is, I mean, this is real. I said I have to go back. And I had a very close friend pass away that week, and I did go back, and that's the, the time that we had started going to a counselor. Um, and even though I was told to expose everything, I lied to the counselor for a year. I lied to my wife for a year. Um, and I tell you, other uh, you know, there's so much more in in the in the in the story. It, it wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. The radio show's too long, but it's not long enough. But through all that time, I'm I have a wife that's going, taking her time making sure that we go to counseling. This counselor was amazing, and I ended up continuing to lie through the entire season of this. And other things was happening to me, and different different things were happening. But finally, this counselor, I was able to – I was able to tell – Start telling. Well, you went to every man's battle. I went every man's battle. Well, yeah, I was. I felt cornered, and at, <laughs> at the end, I did not know. I, I, it, it was. I was so pathetic in my mind and heart. I was going to run. I was going to go on a hunting trip for three weeks and run from this. <laughs> and I ended okay. up being encouraged to go to every man's battle. When I walked in there, that was the first time I divulged to anyone what I had had and what I had been doing. It was the first time, and it was amazing. Um, back to our counselor, this person was a person, and that's why counseling is so important, and it does take time. But a counselor that is biblically and psychologically in in this, um, with the knowledge that they know, I mean, when I was able to get to this place, I learned from from her this verse in my and it was Jeremiah 117 through 119 and what it told me was to tell the truth and what I am doing for you and the blessing that I am doing for you and you're going to say it I never had a problem after that saying it and I divulged that I was sexually abused that I never told one person not one person Carol um, and I was able to talk about the things that I had happened as in my childhood all the way up to, you know, 45 years old, 50 years old. But this um, counselor would go through a lot of my childhood with me, and I was I I was amazed at at that I could actually trust my wife with any secrets and of darkness at all. Uh, and I was able to share it. And, but, and then I went in and again into EMB sharing it with a group of men, uh, that turned out to be the exposure, the light, uh, turned out to be where I started my healing. Well, Except for when he came you know, home. I definitely yeah. believe every man's battle is a wonderful program for so many people who need to find the fellowship to know that they're not alone and to work on their own personal issues. Now, I have a couple of quick questions before our program ends because, John, I know that once you came to grips with your trauma and your addiction, you actually helped Karen with her triggers. Can you tell us how you did that? And then, Karen, I'm going to check in with you about sure. that. Okay. Our, our counselor had taught us. Uh, we called it at the time a comfort circle. Actually, it was comfort therapy, I believe. And it was amazing. 
It, it took me a long time to learn it. It was a fight. It was a battle to get there, to be able to ask the questions and not be and, – and find empathy and be able to drag out all of the hurts that I had caused and sins and more that were uh, inside her. And when these came out, she got started getting better. It was amazing. And I started feeling better, but I had to train myself up. Our counselor trained me to do that. Um, and I wasn't very good at it. But these triggers, I learned, I started liking them. Bring them. Please have one. Because once you get it and you get over yourself and know where it's coming from, the hurt, the psychological yeah. Well, he was starting to get he was starting to get curious and and listen and hear my hurt and sit with me in the pain and hold the bag so to speak of my heart and my hurt and just and there was no more you know no defending minimizing excusing so it was you know what was that like when i left what was that like when you found out i mean you know when he came back from every man's battle he divulged you know the this affair he's been having long you know over almost four years and so that my whole world shattered again and I went into full shock and trauma because I had no idea because I you know like we talked about earlier my gut knew but then my gut you know then I went against it and I trusted my husband in him saying no and then I had to come back and accept this and it was you know dumped on me unfortunately you know versus um you know therapeutic disclosure and so there was just a lot i was in a lot of trauma and i had to go back and and reprocess all of these years of lies and there was just so much but as he started to hold my hurt with me and empathize and have tears with me and pray with me and hold me and ask me what i needed and we'd take walks along the beach and we'd pray and then he'd let me cry and he'd cry with me and it became, I'm not kidding, girl, a beautiful place. It actually, and that's why we just feel so, you know, we love, we tried to share some of that with our, our couples because they're actually, and I know it's not traditional with, you know, with therapy and working with the couples and, you know, reattachment and all those things together in such an early stage of the brokenness. But there was something so beautiful there in our brokenness. And John was broken too because of his, he was starting to deal with all of his traumas and his, you know, he disclosed the sexual abuse and I got to be in the room um, and hear him share all of the traumas and I got to be in that sacred space as well. So then that was safe for him. So here we were, these two broken people and both being safe for one another. And that's what really, um, really started our healing journey, you know, along with our recovery work of going into a group and, and we did our therapist too, I have to say. I mean, she was an APSATS trained therapist, and I don't can't leave that out because that is the most important right. part of this, you know. We didn't know that at the time. I didn't know it exactly, but, you know, but it was like, wow. And that's why she was such an advocate for my emotional safety and my needs. And, you know, I mean, I went into full trauma. My body, I, I, I literally dropped to the ground when he told me in shock and in an embryo position. And I didn't and know, you know at the time at that moment. Get that. Mm-hmm. I, I get that you were in trauma, and you two have been through so much. We need to have a two-hour show. That's what i got to tell you. I know we do. <laughs> <laughs> I Let know we have, do, and there's so much to share. only have a couple of minutes. And, Karen, you know, obviously the two of you have regrown your relationship. You're stronger than ever. You're helping other people. And, and like you said at the beginning of the show, they call you Coach Karen. Let everybody know how you've turned this tragedy into helping others. And then, John, I want to hear yeah. about what you Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, after we went on that journey, it took a while, and, you know, we're building the trust and the restitution and all of those things. And John eventually moved back home, and I have to share, he, too, he, our children. He went back to one by one and did the same thing with each of our children, which turned out, you know, eventually in their time, they all came back and forgave their dad, which was another beautiful thing. But, and, and we're not saying this was easy. This was not an easy journey. But anyway, and so um, and then I started sharing. I ended up in Facebook groups and started sharing our story with other couples and other women in the same position as me. And 
Um, it became a ministry at first, and I ended up going to coaching school and, uh, you know, becoming a betrayal trauma coach. And then I got trained with APSATs. And right, I knew then, I knew when I was in APSATs training that this is what God was doing, taking my pain and turning it into my passion. And um, today I get to walk alongside uh, women, partners every day and encourage their hearts and in their own, like my story, in, in no matter where their marriage is, they, God wants to restore their hearts. And so, you know, I'm a faith-based coach and I point them to God for their healing and, of course, healthy upsets coaches and therapists. And, and to find their voice and their worth and their value and that they are enough, not, you know, their husband, their marriage doesn't define who they are and that they're going to make it no matter what, even if, you know, their marriage doesn't work out. That's, that's just, you know, of course, the extra blessing with our marriage. But I got to a place where I was going to be okay whether John came back or not because of the work I had done and because of how good God was. And so I'm just honored to to be able to walk alongside these beautiful partners and uh, have support groups. And I mean, I'd love to share, you know, I know we're running out of time, but just this week I got a text from my girls in a group, you know, sharing in a group text how much they love one another and how blessed they are to be in a group and have that validation and support and to know they're not alone. And it brought me to tears because it's such a beautiful you know, honored to be a part of that and to see women coming around the corner. Even though they're in miserable, hard places, they found joy. They found laughter. They, you know, they are have their voice, and they're in really, really difficult situations still today, these girls I'm talking about, and yet they have found their tribe. So I so get that. So, John, how are you contributing? Well, first off, I I have found a, a gift from God and, and our counselor, and, and, and he has shown me, or God has shown us. That I go into and help men uh, in, in a personal fight, uh, fighting from the inside, encouraging them, uh, one, to have a team if they have a, a licensed counselor, uh, and certainly that they are in recovery with a group of men. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do is knowing how I came back to my wife, I, I now call myself, in, in retrospect, a, a corner man. And what right. I do is train, train men up to come back, to make the comeback, to be a safe place for their wife. It's a fight um, that I had to go through. I was taught how to go through it, but all my life, for 20 years, I hit a, a, a bag, a punching bag, heavy bag. I never... I've never been in a physical fight in my life. <laughs> but anyway, I know the evil one that we fight against and the psychological side and where he, where he dwells. So what I do is try to get my brothers in Christ to be built up in training to be able to go to their wife, one, by truly getting in repentance and getting into a place where they're more mature and for knowing they're forgiven from Christ so they can get into the arena, not physically, <laughs> I don't want to make it straight, not physically, but it's a, it is a battle for a man to come out of himself and get off of that and be forgiven to look his wife in her eyes and really uh, ask her how I, how I have hurt you. And get vulnerable and transparent, right, honey? Yeah. It, it's a battle, but once the men come into that, once I came into that, knowing what was inside that needed to come out that I could not be responsive in a way that was, I could fix it or I didn't do that. But knowing where the evil one is inside these hurts and the evil that I did. And the thing is this opponent we're fighting, he has a lot of built up resentment against us because he already knows where he's going. And so what I do is encourage my brothers to get in and get to the place where they can be a safe place for their wives, whether or not their wives come back, whether or not they save their marriage, but to get to a safe place of understanding and win it spiritually and psychologically. Um, it's, I love the corner man, honey, because, I mean, that's a, you know, he was cornered, right? But now he's got the boxing analogy of the corner man who aids recovery and supports them, but is not in the ring, and he cheers them on, and it's just it's been 
So yeah, I'm our so safe, proud of him. Our safe yep. response, a man's safe response, it, it continues to frustrate the opponent, which is inside her. And, you know, that corner man says, rough him up. You know, he's a sissy. Uh, hit him real low from behind. You know, uh, you know, our corner says, keep that shadow out in front. Don't, don't react. <laughs> Respond with more, you know, more listening. Get it out. Be encouraging in the end. And it just is, it's a, does a tremendous difference. I don't think our marriage it wouldn't have survived if I know this is my take on, on the fight. It's that real to me, how hard it is for a man to come out. Um, but our I counselor that, first started I want that. to hear more, you guys. We are going to have to book another show. We're <laughs> yes. already past our time. And I want to know right. how can people get a hold of either one of you, because I know you've inspired them tonight. Well, um, I have the website, Restored Hope. Um, it's it's restored-hope.coach or you can email me Karen at restoredhope.coach and John has a page coming on there real soon and his is um, he has an email though right honey it's um, his is called empowered and what's your email J-E-R empowered at gmail.com J-E-R empowered at gmail.com yeah, and my full testimony is on the same page under Redeeming Love, but you, you can you can navigate to any of those pages from, you know, RestoredHope.Coach. Got it. Well, you two, you're inspirational. You give people hope because of what you've been through. I mean, the kind of trauma you both have dealt with, and you've gotten stronger. You're an example of post-traumatic growth, and so – Please, I want to interview you again. I want to go into more about your recovery separately together. Just, I thank you so much for sharing your story tonight. Thank you so much for having us on, Carol. Thank you. And just so grateful to be on here and be a part of ABSAT. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And it is, you know, you've been a, a dream to work with, and I, your ability to coach women goes beyond what one can imagine, because you've been there, Mm -hmm. you've been through it, and you really know the tips and the skills that women need to get healthy. So thank you so much, and I will see you two later. We will. Bye. Okay. Bye, John. All right. We have to end for tonight, but as I always say, there will always be one of you at all times. I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And as you heard tonight, no matter what you've been through, you can get stronger and then you can give back. And that's really the secret of life. Have a great week, and we'll see you real soon for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. <laughs>